On this week's episode of the podcast, we answer all your most pressing questions. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter right now for free. Uh, you'll get all of the most important gun news of the week into your email inbox once a week. You won't get flooded with uh, a bunch of trash, spam emails. It'll just be that one newsletter, uh, and you'll be good to go. Uh, but if you want to go deeper, of course, you can also buy a membership, uh, which is the only way we make money and the only way we can keep doing this. Uh, and also the only way to get a question in on the Q&A episode, uh, you can head over to reload.com and check out our membership options today to get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of uh, analysis and exclusive stories. So go and do that. (laughs) But uh, today, as I alluded to there, we're doing a question and answer episode. I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? I'm doing all right. You ready to answer some questions from the Reload members? Uh, Yeah. Some of the most pressing issues of the day? Let's do it. It's one of my favorite segments that we do when we do these periodic Q&A episodes. So I'm excited to see what the the members have sent in for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that our members... uh, are very smart. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm biased, but I think they, they often have a lot of good insights and good questions. So, uh, and it's no different this time around. So let's get into it. Uh, we'll start with a question from Kyle Gershwind from polling questions. This one's interesting. So I think it'll give us a little bit of a chance to talk about our philosophy on polls and how we cover polls and so forth. But uh, Kyle asks, how confident should we be in the reliability of opinion polling on guns, i.e. for Sullivan's bans, universal background checks, etc.? For instance, when Americans are asked if they want stricter slash the same slash looser gun laws, is there any point of reference for how strict the laws currently are? Uh, you know, and he's got a number of similar points on that front, you know, uh, when people are asked if they want to ban AR-15s? Are they given any additional information on how popular the guns are or how feasible the policy is? Uh, And so it's just sort of a general question here on polling. How reliable should we take it to be? How should we look at, uh, you know, public policy polling around guns? And I think this is a good question. Um, Jake, why don't you I want to hear your take first. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we've kind of talked whenever we do a news update or or whatnot on a particular poll, typical disclaimers apply that, you know, polling isn't an exact science, an exact science. Um, Any one particular poll isn't gospel necessarily. Uh, But what polling is good for is it generally gives you a good indication of a trend. So if you can maybe see a couple different polls and if they're all Noting something similar, maybe directionally the same, if you're seeing multiple polls from multiple pollsters with a decline in support for gun control, for example, then you can use that to say, oh, maybe something is going on here. Um, But in terms of, you know, any one particular poll uh, saying, you know, 54 percent of Americans support X policy, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's an exact 54 percent concrete 
uh, number of people that support that that policy. Um, and, and in terms of his question about whether or not people are given context, typically not. Um, that's usually considered priming your polling respondents. Uh, so it's usually just a fresh question that they're asked. Uh, so they're not necessarily given a whole bunch of context or background before they ask, hey, do you support this policy? Because uh, then that might skew the accuracy of a, of a given poll. Yeah. I mean, when I look at polling, um, I, I, like, I think a lot of your points there are are very salient. You know, there, there's it's not an exact science. You're not going to get perfect results every time. You're not going to be able to. Uh, take a, a couple point shift one direction or another as as an absolute hard truth, um, and there are there are issues I think when you're examining polls that about how they ask the questions, right? That's that's a significant issue. I mean, for I think base level, right? There, there's an important distinction to make too between scientific polling uh, and your sort of uh, unscientific polling, this is like a drudge poll or a poll on a, a website or a Twitter poll or something. Those are not scientific polls. They don't have the necessary um, techniques to give you a more reliable answer. They don't have things like, uh, you know, randomization. They're, they're often, you know, polls that are only being answered by people who are uh, seeking out the poll to answer it, uh, which is a problem. You also have... Uh, representation, you know, is the sample representative of the people you're trying to get uh, information from. <clears throat> That's another problem with, uh, you know, the, this sort of informal polling is that it's basically completely unreliable. But um, that's why, you know, the major polling firms, um, you know, Quinnipiac, Pew, Gallup, <clears throat> Fox, you know, CBS, all these, the major polling firms have at least some of the, those basic safeguards in place to give you some level of reliability that you're not going to get from uh, just your uh, Facebook poll that you put up. Right. Um, <clears throat> and, and so that, that's, that's, I think the first important thing to note about polling is like, there's very different, uh, very different levels of reliability among uh, polls. And you, before you talk about any poll, I think it's important that it has at least those basic safeguards of, a randomized sample of rep that's representative of the people you're trying to um, you're, you're trying to get the opinion of, and uh, and that that the wording is is done in a way that's at least somewhat neutral. Um, you know, there's it's always going to be difficulty in getting to the perfect question because uh, I you know some of the issues here. That Kyle brings up on, for instance, uh, you know, banning AR-15s or assault weapons or whatever. If you don't offer the <clears throat> definition for what an assault weapon is, or you don't, people don't have a conception for how popular AR-15s are, or uh, how realistic the idea of trying to confiscate them is. Um, you know, the poll is going to come out all kinds of different ways. And uh, but at the same time, if you if you ask someone, do you want to uh, ban the AR-15, which, by the way, is this great, awesome, popular gun, and no one would give them up anyway. Like that's also not a fair way to right. phrase a question. Um, so there, you know, there is a lot of uh, ambiguity that goes into it, uh, and a lot of skill really that's required to get uh, 
answers that are actually useful. Uh, and frankly, we're working with most of the time, very imperfect polling in that regard, um, but it can still be useful. I think um, because I mean, it's, a lot of times it's all you've got, right? Uh, you know, we don't have the, the funds to, uh, you know, conduct our own polling. It's very expensive, generally speaking to do. Um, but uh, you, you kind of have to work around those limitations, try and point them out to the, to the reader if possible, you know, uh, be upfront with people about what was, what was specifically asked about, um, and, and why the results matter. And you will get, uh, a lot of times, even in a perfect poll, you know, a poll that's done really well, you'll get answers that are contradictory. Like public opinion is not necessarily consistent on any issue. Uh, this is another point that, that Kyle brings up. Like you're going to get results that seem to contradict, uh, themselves or especially like if you're looking at them from a particular ideological point of view, uh, they, they'll, they might seem to contradict themselves, uh, in your mind, right? Uh, like for instance, you'll often find, uh, in polling, especially, you know, we've done a lot of pieces on the recent polling in, in Texas on the race between Beto O'Rourke and, uh, Greg Abbott. And, uh, you'll find there that Texans want, uh, stricter gun laws, right? Uh, but they also want teachers to be armed. Um, uh, they, they don't like Beto O'Rourke and they put Greg Abbott well ahead of him, but they support, uh, there's a majority support for, um, for uh, confiscate, well, for a mandatory buyback. Uh, of AR-15s and other guns, uh, at least in one poll. Now, another poll shows that a ban on a assault weapons is there's majority uh, opposition to that in Texas. So, uh, you know, now these these are not hugely divergent results. It's not like one poll found 90% of people were for confiscation. The other poll found 90% were against the ban. It was like 50 is in the you know the 50 50 range for both of those polls but but still you're going to have variation from poll to poll you're going to have slight differences in the way that you ask a question uh what does banning assaultants mean what is it what is a mandatory buyback i mean i think to a lot of people who don't understand what that policy is the idea of a buyback sounds um like something that is necessarily mandatory and so uh you know even though it's in it is they do describe it as mandatory buyback uh i think a lot of people might be confused as to what exactly that means like that sounds like you go to a you go somewhere and sell your gun to somebody um but in reality it's just confiscation because you can't you don't have an option um and and people who refuse to do it will be you know prosecuted that's what beta was said um <clears throat> now, obviously, Beto said a lot of things, but <laughs> but uh, so, you know, I think polling, a lot of people will just reject polling outright uh, as completely unreliable and useless. But it's one of the only measures of how people feel about, you know, different policies that isn't just based off of anecdotes, right. basically. And uh, while it's not 
hundred percent reliable as uh, everyone knows um, from, you know, there are lots of you know, polling is a snapshot in time, you know, uh, and it's one that relies on uh, the skill of the pollster to, you know, filter the results with, uh, especially when you're talking about elections, uh, you know, you, they might poll a certain number of people, but then they have to screen who they believe is going to actually show up at and vote. Cause that's different from who, you know, all adults or all registered voters that aren't all going to show up to vote in an election. So what they think is not really what matters. It's what the people who are going to vote think that matters right. uh, in the end. And so that's another layer of subjectivity that's based on, hopefully if you're a good pollster, you know, experience and, and evidence will give you uh, a, a likely voter filter that's actually fairly accurate. Uh, and then, you know, obviously the, so the polling is fairly complicated, as you can see from what we've been talking about here. Right. But I think it is still valuable and useful in at least giving you some sense of what's going on beyond just uh, anecdotes, because that's honestly the only other thing you really have to rely on when you're trying to gauge what people think on an issue. And, you know, the anecdotes that from you and your friends uh, or people you meet at gun shows or whatever are going to be wildly different from, uh, you know, Shannon Watts and her friends and the people she meets at whatever, wherever gun control advocates hang out. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. But, um, uh, yeah, so uh, polling is not perfect, but it is useful indicator of what's going on at a, at a given moment in time. And, and I think Jake is right. It's, it's especially useful for following trends. Right. Uh, you know, so for us, a big point of emphasis and our recent coverage was on, um, the trend of, uh, falling support for assault weapons bans, you know, AR 15 bans in the, in the wake of the Evalde shooting, you know, that, that was an, it, that was particularly newsworthy and interesting because it went against what you'd expect to see. Uh, and it showed a, a distinct change in American attitudes towards uh, these types of firearms at a time where there was more political pressure to uh, ban them than there has been in in quite a long time, right? In decades, really. So, uh, as you saw with the the House passing uh, their version of the assault weapons ban, but uh, yeah, so that that's I mean, polling is. It is a big topic. I know I talked a lot about it there, but but uh, I think it's it's an important one because it's uh, it's a lot of what we write about, and it's uh, it's always going to be a fairly controversial thing. There's a lot of theories about you know whether gun owners are willing to be forthcoming with pollsters about their uh, especially about owning firearms. That's I think an ongoing debate uh, about how accurate polls are at capturing. Uh, gun ownership. We obviously have spent a lot of time covering the recent uh, survey of, of gun owners, the largest one ever conducted by uh, Georgetown professor William English. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think it's something you can just toss out or or um, ignore, especially you know, people in, I mean, of course, people have the tendency to, to like polls when they say what they like right. and then dispute them when they say what they don't like. Uh, we try to stay away from that and just 
give a, a forthright explanation of what's going on and, and explain those caveats that that uh, were that Kyle brought up there. But uh, but yeah, it's, I think that's our overarching view. It's kind of long winded, I guess, but it's uh, that's what we think about about polling. Let's move on to the next question here. That we got some questions on ATF rulemaking because um, that's the next. Uh, that's a pretty significant part of our coverage and what's going on with guns. We got Ken Lewis who asks the ATF's new rule went into effect on 80% receivers and not much changed. They are still for sale. So what did the rule accomplish and what does that say about the pistol arm brace rule that is forthcoming? Um, you want to give that one a shot? Sure. Yeah. So what did change is essentially the availability of complete kits um, so your incomplete receivers with the jigs and the instructions on how to totally complete it, those did get pulled, especially from the bigger uh, companies that were selling them like Polymer 80. They've complied with the new rules. But as you pointed out, all of the individual components are still around. Um, and the ATF I, realizes this. Um, obviously, I think a lot of the media and maybe perhaps some political actors were caught off guard by this because you've seen a lot of coverage mm. in recent weeks about Oh, ghost gun companies are still producing. What what's going on? Are they fla flaunting the ban? And it's no. That's if if you followed what we covered this. If you followed what the ban actually said, it was that hey, the kits are no longer allowed to be sold uh, sold together. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So um, yeah, it, it didn't accomplish. It accomplished what it set out to do. If you take just the literal words of the rule, um, but uh, I think some political actors were expecting a more comprehensive. Blockade, blockade on the supply of ghost gun or of so-called ghost guns. Um, and that's obviously not what happened. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem with rulemaking is that you can only do so much, right? You can't, you can't just invent a new law out of thin air. I mean, obviously some people will argue that that is what they do, but uh, you know, the, and perhaps this will, uh, this is being challenged in court and could um, much like the bump stock ban could eventually uh, be struck down, but, um, there, there, there really is a more limited range of options when you're trying to work from current law and interpret it in certain ways. Uh, this, the redef redefinition of what a receiver, uh, is to include, you know, uh, unfinished parts and, uh, as they're included when they're combined with kits that help you to to finish them, uh, you know, that, that has probably more standing than maybe the bump stock band, just because it's uh, the definition of receiver and frame are effectively left up to regulators uh, under federal law. Like, there's a specific definition under federal law. And so what they were working for from previously was just a rule made by uh, the the federal government or the regulators at the time, and now they're changing that rule. Is it overly broad? I mean, probably probably it's pretty broad, um, but uh, it's something that at least is in the in the area of rulemaking, and uh, you know they can't just uh, you know go out and ban private gun making, for instance, uh, because they'd need a, an actual federal law to do that, which would right. I mean, likely be unconstitutional under the Bruin standard. But either way, you know, it's not surprising to us, right, that 
this is how things turned out with the ghost gun rule because this is what the rule said you know it's it's going and and it's really in line with what the atf was already doing before the rule came down and they were already going after these build by or buy build shoot kits or whatever um and so they're just trying to whittle those down to the point where you can only basically sell the the bare components and you can't sell them together uh which is you know of course logically is still quite questionable as to the idea that uh a a non-functioning receiver combined with you know drill bits and a jig is the same thing as a functioning firearm is um you know still going to be legally and logically questionable but uh, but yeah, it, it never was going to do what the gun control advocates said it would. Um, and, and, and it doesn't, and people are surprised by that. And, uh, you wouldn't be if you read the reload, right? That's right. Uh, but, uh, as for the pistol brace rule, I think that one is, is a bit more substantial in its effects. Uh, and actually we have another question uh, on this from uh, Cody, Cody Claxton, who, uh, who asks, uh, given the upcoming pistol brace ATF rule enforcements, there seems to be a lot of confusion around these, uh, you know, pistols. Uh, you know, there's still, people are still selling uh, guns with braces attached <clears throat> out there on the market. Um, and, uh, you know, there's still plenty of people making these firearms, uh, at the moment. And, and so he's asking what, you know, how, how is that going to, to work once the, the rule goes into effect? Um, you know, how's the registration process supposed to work? And then, you know, he has another question about if you just remove the brace, what is that? Uh, you know, how, how's that gun come out legally? And obviously we can't, give any sort of legal advice, but, uh, but I think there's a couple interesting parts in there, but right. first let's just start off with what the pistol brace ban is going to do. Right. And effectively it, it creates now the final rule isn't out yet. This is an important thing. Uh, we have the draft that was published. Then there was the comment period where, uh, there were quite a lot of comments given on it. Uh, one of the weird things about the pistol brace rule is that it seems to have gotten it's in my opinion it is far more substantial than the ghost gun rule uh the ghost gun rule was was honestly less about ghost guns and more about uh fixing issues they had in court um with their definition of receiver uh because there were um uh, people prosecuted for you know being in felons in possession of you know a lower receiver of an AR15 uh, but the problem with that is that the definition of receiver uh, doesn't fit. <laughs> the, the previous definition didn't really fit the lower receiver on an AR-15. It didn't have the parts that were required for it to be a receiver under the rule. And so there were cases that started getting thrown out for that. And that was, I think, more the main catalyst for, for that rule change, even though the political focus was all on ghost guns. And, and ghost gun kits, uh, the more substantial change had to do with that. So they could basically clean up this, uh, this 
definition that they'd had for what 50 years, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and it just doesn't have that much of a practical effect in, in real life on the vast majority of people. Whereas the pistol brace rule has the potential to affect millions of, of American gun owners. Because if you look at the draft, now this could change because by the time they publish the, uh, the final rule in, which is scheduled for December. Um, but that, that would effectively make most any gun that has a, a pistol brace attached to it, uh, legally a short barrel sh- rifle or shotgun, uh, you know, uh, because if you look at their, they came up with this whole um, numbering, you know, it's like a point score system. Card system, yeah, right, yeah, and, and it, but it, basically, it's still fairly subjective. But really, you run through the the point system, and most every popular brace on any kind of gun is gonna run afoul of that point system. Like the vast majority of them will not be. Uh, will be classified as as short barrel rifles, which is a problem, right? Because short barrel rifles under the National Firearms Act require registration and a tax stamp and is a felony, a federal felony, not to register uh, and pay your tax on on uh, short barrel rifles. And, so, and you can't build them either without um, authorization from, you know, without going through the registration process. So you can't retroactively go through that now there there is some uh evidence that they're going to uh, and and the roy talks about you know then perhaps an amnesty period where people can register the the ones that they already have now the, the atf's position on all this stuff is like is is extremely frustrating thing to a lot of people but it's uh it's always basically been that you know we only judge the guns themselves not the individual components so they've always even though they they've given out authorization letters that say you know this gun this brace on this gun is fine uh is not an sbr or an sbs or whatever uh you know they've always tried to maintain this position that they 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 can't give categorical uh, approval to any anything and so they can only judge guns that they that they actually have. And you can't it's not even like you can actually. This is still a case under this new uh, under the draft uh, regulation. And, and so it's still kind of like, well, we can't really judge any of your guns uh, unless we personally see the individual gun itself. And, uh, you know, the only time that happens is if they're recovered in a crime. So you just might be a felon and not know it um, sort of thing. Now, they give you the point system. This, this, the idea is you're supposed to be able to look at your own gun and try to go through this point system and figure out if your gun is the way it's set up is uh, illegal. Um, but it's still fairly subjective. And I think reading it broadly would put most braced ARs under the, the SBR requirement. And, and so that's millions of people, most likely, given the popularity of those guns of the last decade or so. Um, and th- so this has a much larger impact. But for some reason, uh, the gun control people got really upset that 
that it was taking they were they wanted to take an extra like two months with the ghost gun uh rule and so they they you know blew up the atf leadership they you know sacked marvin richardson they brought in a temporary director uh before the uh before dettelbach could get confirmed and they did all this because they were upset that they weren't moving this ghost gun regulation, which really doesn't have much of a practical impact. Uh, you know, they, they were going to take another month or two to get that in place. Whereas this pistol brace one, which has way more in, practical impact in right. real life, uh, has been pushed from this summer to this winter. Uh, and so it's it's unclear why there's less of a emphasis or concern about that one from the gun control side. It's really quite confusing, honestly, but, um, but it is something that's going to have a significant impact on anyone who owns a gun with a pistol brace attached to it. And, you know, in theory, yes, you could remove, uh, you want to talk to a lawyer before you, before you put your, your freedom on the line for, uh, you know, over the pistol brace setup, uh, there will be, of course, legal challenges to all this yeah. that crop up, I guarantee you. But, um, you know, yeah, if you look at the point system, just removing the brace and just having your uh, on an AR, for instance, and just having the buffer tube does take your points down a lot in a lot in most cases. So um, it might be an option for a lot of people just to wait out the the legal case by just taking their pistol brace off of their uh off of their ar right or you just uh, attach it to an ar with a 16 inch plus barrel because the criteria has to do like you said cumulative cumulatively within a complete firearm um and so then you wouldn't run run afoul of any sbr rules if that was the case as well but as we said caveats aside no we're not lawyers don't take us for legal advice but um yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, I just find the whole situation with uh, the pistol brace ban to be pretty fascinating. And, and um, yeah, I mean, there there probably are ways to reduce the point count if that's how the final rule comes out. We still don't know what right. exactly their final rule is going to be, if they're going to change anything or what. Um, but if it comes out that way, that would be how you would um, – how you would uh, – maybe bring your points down. Uh, anyway, there's also like the ATF is very unlikely to go door to door and check all your guns to try and figure this out too. Right. So, um, you know, there's sort of a practical aspect to enforcing this sort of thing too. Uh, I mean, you've seen that with a lot of, a lot of confiscation efforts in the United States, you know, whether it was the safe act or confiscation, or even just registration efforts. Um, uh, you know, whether you're talking about New York safe act or New Jersey's, uh, magazine confiscation uh effort that they put into place a couple of years ago basically nobody complies with these things right and there's generally no mass effort to enforce them um in real life they just sort of are unenforced crimes that, that are on the books which is still uh not a good thing and right. for society and uh, quite bad but but that's usually the practical outcome of it um either way uh what's the next question we got yeah, we got some questions about the NRA and sort of Second Amendment advocacy groups more broadly. Uh, this comes from Josiah Hunter. Uh, he asks, uh, 
what we think the pro 2A movement is going to look like in a post-NRA landscape. So he's assuming that the NRA either folds or emerges from its legal uh, troubles that we've covered pretty extensively, um, just in a different form or a different strength. Uh, and he talks about, you know, what, what does that look like in a world where they're no longer the top dog? Um, and he asks specifically about things like the lobbying world, uh, gun safety and training, uh, instructor certification, um, which obviously is something that the NRA does far more than some of the other groups uh, have the means to do currently. So what do you think, Steve? What, what does that world look like without the NRA uh, being the top dog? I think that's a really good question that gets wildly overlooked uh, by basically everyone in in media, whether it's gun media or political media or you know, news media, whatever, what have you. Nobody is really talking about this very much, and it's hugely important. Because the NRA um, is far more important to gun politics than people seem to want to believe uh, anymore. You know, the, even the gun control groups have kind of moved on to new boogeymen. Like they're talking about the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the industry's trade group, um, as they're kind of setting them up for their new to be the new boogeyman <clears throat> of the the gun control movement and. Um, you know, first off, the NRA isn't isn't gone. It's still the largest and most influential uh, gun rights group in the country, or any of uh, any kind of gun group. You look at their finances; they're they're terrible compared to the NRA's previous finances. They're still way beyond anyone else working on on the gun issue today. Um, the gun control groups are catching up a bit. Um, if you look at some of their like the PAC numbers, and we'll we'll have more on this. In the near future, but if you look at you know political spending from their PACs, um, <clears throat> the NRA's fundraising has fallen off and spending has fallen off significantly over the last several years. And sorry, and they uh, uh, they're being caught by the gun control groups, who you know now that it takes three significant gun control groups to match you know what the NRA is trying to do. Uh, you know, every town Giffords and, and Brady, but, but they are getting much closer. Uh, I will say of course that every town, for instance, was supposed to spend $60 million in, uh, 2020 and then just didn't do it. And no one even noticed outside, like really was the only one who covered the fact that they fell wildly short. They spent about 25 million of their, uh, their planned 60 million. And uh, now, obviously, the, the pandemic happened, so that's probably part of the reason. But, uh, you know, Michael Bloomberg just didn't give them the money that year that he had pledged. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it's not as though the gun control groups are, are um, you know, doing so great on their own. And, and they are still largely reliant on really big dollar donors like Michael Bloomberg, almost exclusively. Right. <laughs> like, that guy has really... Uh, funded the vast majority of the modern gun control movement. Um, you know, it, it hasn't been, it's a very different funding structure than what you see at the NRA, which does rely much more on smaller uh, donors, individual donors than the gun control side. But either way, um, point is they're, they're not doing nearly as much as they were. And nobody is making up that gap. There, there are areas where the other gun rights groups are sort of picking up the slack almost exclusively in the legal realm where the NRA hasn't been 
you know, a super active group anyway for a long time, uh, even when their finances were much higher. You know, the, certainly they're not in it. They're not. They're still important. They were the, the their state affiliate is the New York Rifles or the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, which just won the brewing case. So, right. you know, you can't discount their their legal efforts uh, altogether either. But, uh, you know, groups like the Second Amendment Foundation and Firearms Policy Coalition and Gunners of America uh, have become much more active. I mean, some of them were around and very active. You know, Second Amendment Foundation has been around for a long time doing legal work. But, um, you know, that that's an area where you're seeing more uh, of the slack being picked up by these gun rights groups, but you're, you're not seeing that nearly as much in the, uh, the lobbying realm, you know, in DC, uh, at the state level, you're seeing some more, move, more, uh, effort from gun owners of America than you have in the past, especially in places like, uh, you know, Pennsylvania. Um, they've got more of a, a ground team together there. Uh, but really nobody is, matching what the NRA has traditionally done in those areas. Uh, and that's a huge problem, I think, going forward, especially if the NRA continues on this trajectory of losing money and membership and uh, maybe even has its, um, you know, it, losing in court. They've, they just lost another case in the Second Circuit on their uh, First Amendment claims against uh, some New York officials uh, from 2018 and you know they they've had you know a string of losses they lost the bankruptcy they lost they've they've had to settle with their former contractor Ackerman Queen they've um they've lost uh, efforts to try and move this New York case to different courts um and you know the whole thing has had a really detrimental impact on on the organization and i mean honestly you don't even hear very much about them in DC uh, right now, uh, maybe that'll change as the election season heats up and they start spending more money in some of these swing races. I mean, that's always been a big part of that they've played that no one else is, as far as I can tell, as far as we've seen, right? Jake has really tried to take up that mantle. Um, and so, uh, it, it's a pretty big deal for the NRA to be weekend, uh, because, there are, the NRA does a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, safety and training is another great example of, you know, they're still doing it. It's not like they don't exist anymore, but they're right. smaller than they were. Uh, they have less resources to commit to that. They're spending, the biggest line item in their budget has been on um, administrative legal expenses, which, you know, is effectively paying their their outside lawyer um, and, uh, and others to fight their dissolution case in New York, this corruption case that they're, that they're under. Um, now that there is a bright spot in that case. And just in the fact that Letitia James, the New York attorney general requested this full dissolution of the NRA, right. To completely disband it, uh, as, as a potential punishment for the allegations of corruption over there, but that was taken off the table by the judge. So they won't be disbanded. Um, so they will exist. They'll continue to exist after this, this case, so long as their finances stay um, sustainable, which is, which is uh, honestly a legitimate question. I mean, for instance, um, 
know, their membership has been shrinking since 2018, according to the internal documents that we published earlier this year. Uh, we don't seem to have, we don't hear anything about that, uh, their membership from them anymore, which is a bad sign, right? right? Uh, if they were gaining a lot of members, which frankly, you would think that they would be at this. This is a political environment where they should be gaining members, right? You had two straight years of record gun sales, millions of new gun owners, and uh, a president who is hostile towards gun rights, um, is pushing for all sorts of new gun control legislation. You just had the first federal uh, gun restrictions passed in decades. <laughs> all of these that you have a you have a candidate running in Texas who's openly for confiscation of firearms. Uh, you would think that all of these things would combine to generate more memberships for the NRA. Like this is the and we're in an election year, right? But the NRA has made no announcements about putting any numbers on their, you know, whether they've got new members. And the even if they're still using the five million number, which we know from the internal documents was has not been accurate for a while. Uh, you know, they, they first hit 5 million back in 2012. I mean, or t- is it 2012 or 2013. And so either way, it's like a, about a decade ago. And they should be just by population growth alone, significantly higher than that. So there's a lot of problems. They, they may get... Um, reformed effectively at, through this court case because what's left on the table is removing basically NRA leadership. Wayne LaPierre, um, you know, other other members of the executive committee and um, that could result in a brand new NRA. Now, I think people are rightfully skeptical that Letitia James is going to, given that she would be the one advocating for this, uh, is that it's going to end up um, as a positive thing for the organization, even if she gets to that point. I mean, a lot of people, of course, uh, Wayne LaPierre has a lot of critics in the gun rights movement. They, a lot of people want to see him removed from leadership at the NRA, uh, but the same people probably don't trust Letitia James very much. And so really... If you're somebody who wants to see the NRA's leadership removed and replaced, you think they're doing a poor job based on, you know, the financial performance, and the, the legal performance, all the, all this stuff that's happened, the shrinking of the membership. Um, you know, your best hope is probably the judge in that New York case. Just hope that he's actually worried about the interests of the members um, over anyone else. So, you know, it is a significant problem, and it's one that's not talked about much. The, the waning influence of the NRA uh, is a big deal. They are the main player in the political realm. There's nobody else that comes anywhere close to having their level of influence on Capitol Hill, on gun issues, uh, or really in a lot of state houses, too. There's a lot of great state-based groups. Uh, of course, a lot of them are NRA affiliates. And... Um, there are plenty that aren't NRA affiliates that are also uh, very influential in, uh, in in the state houses, but it's, it's not as though you've seen a big push from anyone to try and replace the NRA's 
um, a number of the things they do. Really, the legal realm, you've seen a lot of new, uh, a lot of the gun rights groups have gone there. That's sort of the, the current fad is is uh, getting, you know, filing your own lawsuits, which not a bad idea at this point in time, right? There's a lot of fertile ground for for winning those cases right now. So uh, it makes sense and you don't need as much organization or money to get involved in that as you would to build a nationwide gun rights um, network that's actually influential across the country and on Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, th those are much harder things to do and take a lot longer, uh, especially when the NRA is still around, you know, like they're not going to want to cede ground to other groups, of course. And um, <clears throat> while they might very well work with them, it's not, it's still much harder to gain influence while there's our, the NRA is still sort of, well, not as big or influential as it was, it's still out there and it's still significant. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the reality of the situation. I think a lot of people just assume the NRA doesn't matter if they're, if, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who've given up on the NRA as an organization, I think, uh, you know, who, who agree with that the corruption is disqualifying or so forth or what, what have you, the people in that camp, I feel like the prevailing opinion of a lot of those people is that the NRA just doesn't matter anymore. Um, and so we don't need to worry about what happens with them. And I don't think that's remotely true is the problem. I no, yeah, what do you think? I think that captures the crux of it. I think part of the, the, the question here is assuming that the NRA goes away. And as you pointed out, they are very much still around, you know, they've had, they've had their troubles, but they're still, they're still here. So you're not going to see other groups fill some of the niches that they uh, currently fill outside of perhaps litigation, as you've pointed out um, while they're still around. And, and so, yeah, the fact that, yeah, they are, decreasing their spending on things like lobbying and their safety training. It doesn't matter. Everyone knows NRA instructor certifications, for example, that's pretty ubiquitous throughout the country. And he points yeah, to, I mean, I'm still a certified instructor right, right. for basic pistol. Like it's not, <clears throat> and there aren't really, there, you know, USCCA is, is doing their own training yeah. program. There's some other ones out there, but nobody is at anywhere near the scale right. that the NRA is. It's just not even close. And the recognition. Uh, and only people get that. Um, yeah, I don't think people get how hard it will be to replace what they've done, uh, <clears throat> especially when they're still around, you know, yeah. or, or to reform the organization. You know, there have been some people who have tried to reform from the inside, you know, Journey, uh, Judge Journey, who was a board member. You've got um, Rob Pincus, who, you know, was involved with Save the Second. And those those efforts really have not gone very far. They haven't they haven't accomplished very much, just frankly. Uh, they haven't gotten a lot of this popular support to do it you know not it's not like you don't you go to the nra annual meeting and it's not as though there's a huge outpouring of support for wayne necessarily i mean this like all the governance meetings that happened during that there was like nobody there uh basically and the, the convention was on was was tiny compared to previous years uh, we did pieces on it you know at the time i think that it was like 2006 was the last time they had membership uh, you know attendance that low uh they only had like 500 people vote in the 76th you know director election which is decided at the annual meetings like the the every metric you can look at it is very negative for the nra right now like it's just it just is there's no sugar coating it um and uh but at the same time it's not as though you've seen you know the thousands of people pour out to support the reformers either so 
you know, I, I don't know. It's it, the probably if you're if you're somebody who's hoping for the NRA to significantly change, your your only real hope is that the that the judge forces them to, because there's no there's no internal the internal effort for reform has failed effectively at least to this point. Maybe something will change, but and the people in charge don't think that they have really done much of anything wrong. So they're not going to, there's no, not likely to be any changes uh, among the people who are already running the organization. So um, yeah, I mean, like it's not a pretty picture, but, uh, and look, you know, the NRA is, I'm always happy to have someone from the NRA on the show to, to, you know, talk, to defend the organization and how it's run itself. Um, you know, we've had some of the reformers on the show in the past, uh, and I, I, you know, we've, we've asked them hard questions as well, but, but, you know, I think what people miss is that it, it's like, you're saying it's, it's, a, it's still, it's an important organization. It's still extremely important. And what happens with it really matters a lot for gun politics in America. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, we move on to a couple. We have several questions about uh, reciprocity in the wake of the Bruin decision. Um, start with William S. And he asks, does the Bruin ruling and New York City's recently passed concealed carry laws give the United States Supreme Court the motivation slash reason to take a case addressing national reciprocity? Um, and he asks, you know, if they about sensitive places in New York City and overturning that. If that gets overturned, does that open the door for sensitive places? Um, and several other questions. Ken and, and Luigi both ask for their specific states where they're at, if, if we could see any movement in reciprocity. So what do you think is going to be the uh, landscape for reciprocity now that Bruin has been decided? Yeah, that's a really good question, right? I, I think it's one of those things that was left unaddressed in Bruin. Uh, just completely unaddressed. Uh, unlike Ren v. D.C., which is the case where uh, D.C.'s May issue law was thrown out, um, the Supreme Court did not require that New York issue permits to people from out of state even. Uh, they didn't require that New York recognize any other state's permits. Uh, really, they just focused completely on the process for obtaining a permit and how New York's subjective, you know, may issue law was not constitutional, but they didn't talk at all about reciprocity. And I think that's something that's going to take a while to get addressed. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, uh, that's been a top priority of the gun rights movement at the federal level for a long time. You know, Rep Hudson out of North Carolina, he's been pushing for national reciprocity for years, um, but it's never gone anywhere. Right. Uh, you know, the problem being that you need 60 votes in the Senate. And while you could, in a, you know, during the beginning of the Trump administration, you might've been able to get, uh, you know, mid fifties on a, on a bill like that. It's probably very hard to pass something like that at the federal level. I mean, that's why you've seen basically no, uh, gun rights legislation for decades in the United States. I mean, the biggest federal accomplishment for gun rights in, well, since, you know, the turn of the millennium has been the expiration of the Sullivan's ban, which required the federal government to do nothing. Right. right. 
Um, and, uh, you know, you just haven't had much in the way of, of gun rights legislation at the national level. And it's unlikely that you're going to see national reciprocity make it through. And so, yeah, you got to, it's another area where the courts are your, probably your best bet. And there hasn't really been much in the way of an organized challenge to, uh, you're in favor of national reciprocity or challenging the different states, you know, require lack of recognition for other, other states permits. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, maybe you have a full faith and credit challenge. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't seen anyone seriously talking about this in the legal, uh, you know, the gun rights legal landscape. So I, it doesn't seem like something that's coming up anytime soon. I think there's other fights that the gun rights movement, you know, the gun rights groups feel more confident in uh, taking on. Uh, and this one is probably down the list of ways. So I wouldn't expect national reciprocity to happen anytime soon, either by legislation or, or court order. Yeah. Uh, the best, the best thing you can hope for on that front is something like what happened in Virginia a couple of years ago, which is where they recognized every other state's permit. And so sometimes that'll give you, if your state does that, that often gives you a few more states where your permits recognized because some states require, you know, mutual recognition to, uh, for, for, you know, to, to recognize other people's permits. But, uh, you know, if you're talking about states, places like DC, New York, California, it's unlikely that they're ever going to voluntarily recognize anyone else's permits. And, um, I don't, how it'll probably be a long time before anyone tries tries a case like that in, in a serious way uh, to force them to recognize it. So yeah, I don't think that Bruin really has much of an effect in this in this regard. Um, at least not for a while. There's just so many other cases that they're gonna um, that they're they're gonna go through first. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And you could even kind of t- tell in the Kavanaugh. Uh, concurrent opinion in Bruin, where he seemed to be willing to leave a lot of room for states to handle their permitting. As so long as it was objective, he seemed to be like, hey, do what you want, as long as you're objectively granting these permits. And it would just seems like a stretch to then immediately turn around and say, okay, now states, you must recognize every other state's permit. Um, so I think I think you have a good point there that this is going to be something that's going to take either legislation at the federal level where there's a, you know a big 60 seat win for the republican party or it's going to be a court case down the road um i think that's that's a, a good point yeah and i think there's more of a chance that you'll see courts force states to issue non-resident permits rather than to accept other states permits because uh, at least in that case the state would still have control over yeah. the process um and and so, you know, uh, I just think it's a long ways off. We also had Luigi ask, uh, is it better to apply for a CCW in California now or after the midterms? Um, and ideally under a different, you know, maybe you get a better sheriff uh, in the meantime. Sure. Right. Uh, wherever you are in California, uh, because that's who issues this permits in California. And I would say that for places there, you know, right now, in places like California and Maryland, for instance, 
I would immediately try to get the yeah. permit if I were you. Yep. Because, 100%. yeah, I mean, uh, California's going to pass uh, a New York cop style concealed carry restriction bill uh, at the end of this year, almost certainly. They tried to pass it on an emergency basis uh, a little while back and failed because they couldn't get to the, I think it was what, two thirds needed to, uh, they, they fell short by a couple of votes, but once they, they can pass it by, you know, simple majority and they'll get the votes for that. Um, they just have to wait until the next session, which starts in December, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so once that happens, there's going to be a lot more restrictions in place. And I think it may also change how they're, they're issued taking, I think they're going to centralize that process to the attorney general. So if you have the opportunity to go and get one right now, that's probably your best bet. Um, you know, obviously you'll still have to abide by the new restrictions they put in place, which are going to be extremely onerous as you've seen in New York. Uh, but at least you'll have the permits. Um, whereas, you know, you might, uh, if they double down on these good character clauses, which are basically very similar to the good reason clause that was struck down in Bruin, but, uh, will still probably hold you up from being able to get the permit once those laws actually go in place, or at least it'll be a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, and then in Maryland, you know, it's a similar idea where right now there's a Republican governor, but it's very unlikely that the Republican who is running for you know, that, that governor Hogan is retiring and or not running for reelection. And so, um, his Republican replacement, uh, he's refused to endorse. He's kind of this, um, you know, further right maggot type guy and it's Maryland. So almost certainly going to lose. And, uh, that means that Democrats will have total control of the state government in Maryland, which means they will probably try and pass some sort of restriction on gun carry there. So if you have the opportunity to get a permit now in Maryland, I would, I would do that. And there's probably a couple other states where that's, that's also the case, but those are sort of two examples. Um, anyway, next up, we got another uh, blue state question, assault weapons related. We got uh, Charles in, in Delaware, uh, where he, he says they passed, uh, they recently passed an assault weapons ban. Um, and now the Del- Delaware State Sportsman Association is suing the state over this ban. And he's wondering if it's going to be successful. And so Delaware is uh, the the one state that has passed an assault weapons ban in the last 25 years. Yeah. Uh, a new one. And so they kind of uh, were the, the one example against my, you know, couple of recent pieces where I wrote that the assault weapons ban era is over because the polling has moved against it. Um, there's, there was no... There's no path for it to pass in Congress anytime soon. And um, there really hadn't been any states that passed it since the 90s uh, until Delaware did this and uh, sort of threw a wrench into that. Uh, But um, and then, of course, the third prong of the reason why I believe the Solomon's ban era is over is the legal side of things. There's there's much less of a chance that these um, these 
bills are going to survive scrutiny under Bruin. Uh, there just isn't a historical analog really for assault weapons bans. You know, these bans on popular firearms like the AR-15 and AK-47 and and a myriad of other guns are usually affected by these um, assault weapons bans. Of course, as we've talked about a number of times before, assault weapons varies the definition of it from state to state where these things have been imposed. I think Delaware's ban is the more updated version that covers a lot more firearms, sort of like the new assault weapons ban in the House was sort of twice as strict as the old one because it went from you could have two features to you can only have one feature um, for, you know, of these banned features on your gun. And so do I think it'll be successful? Probably. I mean, that's, uh, I think we had, um, you know, another question uh, about the the status of uh, the assault weapons bans across the country and the legal challenges to them. And my guess is that you'll have a, a conclusion in one of those other cases before you get one in this Delaware case. Uh, but it'll probably be uh, substantial. Now, it'll probably take another several months to to a year for you to start seeing, you know, final opinions in these sorts of cases. I think with California, the Ninth Circuit sent their, their case back down. You know, the, the Supreme Court, after Bruin accepted uh, – what was four gun rights cases. I believe two of those were assault bans, right, Jake? Uh, just one, I believe. Two were magazine oh, okay. cases. All right. Similar case. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, those are kind of magazine limits and assault bans are going to be... They kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah they're going to be decided fairly similarly, I would imagine. And, um, But yeah, so there's a Maryland case and a California case uh, and they've both, I believe, been sent back down to their district court levels where they're progressing at different speeds. I think the one in California is progressing quite quickly because right. uh, that went to Judge Benitez, who has struck down a lot of California gun laws right. um, and uh, already struck down the assault weapons ban under a, a reasoning that was pretty close to what the Bruin standard is. So that case is probably going to move pretty fast. Plus the uh, Colorado cases that we've been covering in federal court, they've already been some temporary restraining orders issued against local assault weapons bans. And that's a, a federal court decision as well. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously you can't predict 100% what this Delaware judge is going to do. There's always wild cards in, in legal cases, but the, the trends seem to indicate that uh, things are moving against the legality of assault weapons bans in this post-Bruin landscape. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, those two Colorado cases were also by uh, Democratic appointees. One was an Obama appointee, another one was a, a Biden appointee. So that was actually kind of surprising because of that. Um, you know, it seems like perhaps the lower courts are going to be, uh, from what, what's happened thus far, it does seem like the lower courts are going to be a lot more, I don't know, faithful in applying the 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 Supreme Court standard for gun cases moving forward. So there is very hard to justify an assault weapons ban, which the concept for this didn't occur until the, um, I mean, the, the mid 20th century, really? 
really late 20th century. It's like the first one was in the 80s, I think. Yeah, like in California. Yeah. So, and and you're talking about banning guns that are clearly in common use. They're the most popular rifles, the AR-15. There's 24 million of them out there. There's no, there's no coincidence that the National Shooting Sports Foundation put out that report at the time that it did earlier this year, right. you know, uh, when the assault weapons was passed in the House. Their point is these are in common use for lawful purposes. Uh, there's one behind my head right now. <laughs> like this is not uh, a uh, unusual and dangerous weapon uh, as would be potentially allowed uh, to that, that the government would potentially be allowed to restrict under the Heller uh, and, and Bruin standard. But um, yeah, so I, I think there's a good chance that eventually the law will get struck down. The problem is, of course, in the meantime, it's not going to it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, you know, these rulings are not going to come out overnight. And um, but anyway, we get on to our last question here. We've got uh, Liz Mayer, who uh, who I've known for a long time and has uh, I just think he's done some work in this area on the the financial the you know, government pressuring financial institutions um, to stop working with controversial industries or disfavored industries, I guess is a better way of putting it. But um, Liz is asking about the MCC changes. She said, uh, uh, to what extent do you think recent action by credit card companies to tag gun sales in a way that may reduce their likelihood of, of being processed signals are moved by government or quasi government organizations to try to push gun control through the back door as they did back in the day under president Obama with, Operation Choke Point. Um, and so, uh, well, I think there's a couple things to address in there, right? I mean, first is, uh, well, I, let's talk about what Operation Choke Point was just to begin with real quick, just a refresher. So Choke Point was uh, the, Obama, the Obama administration's effort to get financial institutions to stop working with certain industries that they didn't like. This included, um, you know, the payday lender industry, um, the gun industry, of course, uh, and the adult entertainment industry. And, you know, it, it did this by trying to, in, you know, intimidate them into not working with these groups by talking about, um, you know, the reputational risks of it, the, uh, uh, and, and, you know, giving them incentives not to, to engage in that kind of business. And so it was basically a, a government effort to pressure these, you know, big banks into just not, it is trying to limit these, these industries they didn't approve of. Totally legal industries, of course. And that was the problem. And, and so uh, that blew up. In, and became a huge, uh, pretty significant scandal under the Obama administration, and uh, they eventually backed off. But now, of course, the effort to get financial institutions to stop working with the, these industries, especially the gun industry, has never stopped, of course. Uh, they've just been a bit less overt in pressure directly from the government. And I think this, the uh, MCC changes, the Merchant Category Code change, that we've covered uh, the last couple of weeks is an example of that. Yeah. Now it's not government pressure in this case, as far as we know to this point, uh, outside of um, 
you know, there were there were there was a letter from some Democratic senators and yeah, Senator um, Warren. Yeah, Warren and and Letitia James from New York was put out a press release talking about uh, supporting this this idea because the gun control groups were were have been pushing this for a while now and uh, Amalgamated Bank, which is the bank of a lot of the Democratic institutions out there, is sort of an activist bank, but. Um, you know, it's, it wasn't it wasn't quite to the level of choke point, which was more of a direct government operation to pressure these institutions. This was more of a uh, concerted uh, effort by activists, which was supported rhetorically by by these uh, elected officials. Um, but but it it also doesn't necessarily reduce the likelihood that they're going to be processed. The, the you know sales at at the new um, MCC code for gun stores. Uh, that's the banks all have said that they won't use it that way, and that they'll, you know, Visa and, and Mastercard have said that they wouldn't, they won't allow it to be used that way in their network, uh, and that they'll, you know, you can't use MCC codes to deny any legal transactions. Um, but obviously, it's still part of that effort to pressure financial institutions into instituting a sort of private privatized version of gun control. Uh, you saw this with uh, big banks a couple of years back, uh, especially after Parkland where they, you know, Citibank and Bank of America cut ties with uh, gun companies, said they wouldn't do business with them, wouldn't lend them money anymore unless they stopped making, you know, AR-15s or guns that the banks didn't like. Uh, you know, it, it's certainly an ongoing effort to restrict the gun industry and gun sales on a sort of uh, private basis on the private side of things through, you know, coordinating policies among the, the major financial institutions. Um, and, it, you know, it is something that uh, now, you know, we've talked about the MCC change, obviously, uh, a lot on the show and, and in, at the reload. And it, on its own, it doesn't do much of anything. But, of course, the goal is not just changing this MCC code. The goal is to try and monitor gun sales to identify suspicious patterns and then report those to the police uh, under the guise of preventing mass shootings. So there's a lot more steps that would have to happen before they got to that goal, but that is the end goal of, of these activists. Uh, and it is part of a larger effort to use private institutions to restrict gun sales rather than passing laws or, or really in addition to the effort to try and pass laws. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I think that's the main difference between this and something like choke point. The fact that it was activist driven and private company driven rather than, uh, an overt effort by the federal government to stick its nose in, in business and, and push it a certain way. So I think that is the big difference. And like you said, it doesn't do anything at the moment uh, to restrict the processing of gun sales. Um, so until that changes, I think that is a, a noteworthy difference. I think that's something that's going to be ongoing too, right? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, this is not the last fight in that effort. Um, and this one's not even over yet. The MCC code change right there's there's still a fight over that itself that we're we're going to continue to follow and, and report on as well but uh, i think that answers every question uh that we've got on our list here 
uh, hopefully, uh, you know, if we didn't get to your question, you remember, I will try to answer by email, but, uh, but yeah, we appreciate you guys sending these in there. A lot of really good questions. We were able to explore a lot of uh, interesting topics. Uh, I think it's going to be valuable for everyone who gets to listen to it. Uh, of course, members will get it first, as always, uh, on Sundays, and then it'll go live to everybody else on Monday. Uh, but, uh, you know, and members also, by the way, have the opportunity to appear on the show. I believe we'll have uh, a member segment next week uh, that will do exactly that. So I'm um, looking forward to that one. <clears throat> but for now, uh, that's it. Head over to reload.com, sign up for a free newsletter, and buy a membership if you want to get even more knowledge and information from an informed, independent outlet like The Reload. But uh, until next week, we will see you guys.